Nehemiah chapter 6. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are continuing along towards the middle of this wonderful letter in our series on Nehemiah. And we are looking at the book of Nehemiah as a way to see how God may be able to speak into our church in terms of all of us coming back and continuing to worship and to suffer and to rejoice together as a community of God, as the Lord builds and restores us together. And so out of an act of reverence and worship, if I could ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, into chapter 7, verse 4. Nehemiah 6, starting with verse 15, this is God's Word for us today. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around, around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was a son, son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke all good, all his all spoke all of his good deeds, of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter seven, one. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. And this is God's word for us. Please take your seats. Well, if you've been with us during the past handful of months looking at the book of Nehemiah, you'd realize that on the human level, the great project that Nehemiah set forth to accomplish was to rebuild the walls of the holy city of Judah in Jerusalem. And it's almost anticlimactic when you read verse 15, because Nehemiah writes there, so the wall was finished. It wasn't very celebratory. There wasn't red ribbon cutting. There wasn't a glass of champagne that was broken. So the wall was finished. Very simple. I think part of that is probably a reflective and a reflection of Nehemiah's character and his leadership style. It wasn't about pomp and circumstance. It wasn't about the excitement of the people. It wasn't to proclaim the accomplishments of his leadership. But I think he had a greater goal. And in these verses, what we're going to see is that this greater goal is ultimately to bring God into the presence of people so that it could be accomplished. It wasn't an architectural goal. It was a spiritual kingdom goal. And that's what the challenge was. And there's a transition here because they finished the physical entity of this wall, and now they're trying to rebuild not just the wall, but rebuild the community of God's people. So this marks that transition into that direction. I read the commentaries, I always do, a handful of commentaries on this wonderful book of Nehemiah. And in Raymond Brown's commentary, as he begins to talk about the seventh chapter that we're beginning to see, he tries to encapsulate the thrust of the point in 10 principles of leadership. So when he reads and he exegetes and explains chapter 7, there are 10 principles of leadership. We're going to consider three of those principles here today, in which I sort of tweak for our context, as well as some of the insights I gather from my own reading and praying of the passage. But three principles of leadership 
that by example could also be three gospel virtues that every member, whether leader or not, can apply to your individual life and context. That's what we'll consider. The first leadership principle is this. Keep spiritual priorities. Don't get lost in the visible world, as good as it is, but keep spiritual priorities. Secondly, pick godly partners. Be careful who you put in leadership and who you work with. They always say, by the way, you can really get to know someone, even your best friend, if you go on vacation with them, but open, also open a business with them. Pick godly partners. And thirdly, have the wisdom to recognize dangers and threats. Dangers and threats. Keep spiritual priorities. Pick godly partners. Recognize danger and threats. So let's look and consider together the first spiritual principle today. Keep kingdom and spiritual priorities here. You can see his priorities in the way that Nehemiah assigns his personnel and his people. Read with me verse 1. Now when the wall of chapter 7, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, this was his first move after the completion of the wall. He assigns different people with different functions and purposes. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, they had been appointed. It shows his priorities here and their significance in these people, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. It actually coincides with the community's physical, spiritual, and intellectual concerns and priorities. So let's look at this really quickly. What were his kingdom priorities, his spiritual priorities, were first he assigned the gatekeepers, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Gatekeepers closed the gate of the temple. It was a big and long and heavy temple wall. So they closed the gate and the entrance into that community and that city. Physical protection, which became even more of a concern as the city begins to grow. Because right now, when you read these verses, there weren't many people there because there weren't many houses that were built. But gatekeepers were required for the physical protection of the people. But it's not just that. There's also later on in verses 22, chapter 13, that gatekeepers also had a moral obligation because they had to bolt the gate, close the gate, especially on days of Sunday, or back then maybe Saturday, because pagan traders kept coming in with their businesses and they would destroy the worship practices and the worship of God's people. So they had... And the gatekeepers, the physical protection, but they also had a moral one to make sure that they could honor the Sabbath. And they could do this in a way that could allow people to flourish in the context of worship. Now, if I had more time, I'd probably string along in some ways the connection between the gatekeepers and maybe they're supposed to be similar to the ruling elders, in which the ruling elders have a moral obligation to protect the church from physical and spiritual harm as well. But that's the application of the gatekeepers. And by the way, when it says there, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, it's basically saying close the gates because it might be that back then, part of their daily ritual was that they had a siesta and there was a nap time in the middle of the day, which made them especially vulnerable. So Nehemiah says, make sure you close the gate before it gets really hot because that's basically around the time that they took their siesta and their naps and made them particularly vulnerable. But that was their kingdom priority when it came to the gatekeepers. I'm going to skip to the last one and look at the Levites. 
Their other priority was simply this, teaching, intellectual, Bible study. See, the Levites in worship back then was a little bit different. You would have the prophet like Ezra read the scriptures and would go out into the people, and then the Levites, the Bible study leaders, would go out to the community, and they would explain and apply the Bible to the individual people here. So it showed that one of the priorities that Nehemiah had was to make sure that the people understood and applied the word of God. That's why he made sure the Levites were appointed. And last but not least, there is a spiritual need, which basically is worship. And that's why he applied the singers, because singers reminded us there's more to life than work and money. Because when people went to the temple, friends, their minds were lifted above in worship, the everyday mundane issues of the world that normally dominated the mind and their anxieties throughout the week. And as they gather together, they worship just like we do here today. And then they reflect on the meaning of life, instilled confidence of their faith, was assured of forgiveness. They had primacy of Christ's love, the guarantee of the spiritual strength, a horizon of hope in the resurrection. Treasure is not available for purchase in the Jerusalem marketplace, but the temple in their worship, reminded through the virtue of appointing the singers, reminded them that this reality that's theirs in Christ was affirmed week in and week out. So singers were appointed to praise God as the highest possible priority within their community life. Worship. Worship. Now, one of the philosophies and ministries at New Life is that we always say worship is the highest privilege and the greatest responsibility for the Christian. What is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that you have? Well, yeah, you sure, you need to understand the Bible, and if you're really gifted, be a great apologetic, understand the skeptics and defeater beliefs, how to engage the atheists and the agnostics and the Jewish people of faith. But really, one of your greatest testimonies that you could really witness to your believers, unbelieving friends, is to come to church consistently in person when you're ready and feeling comfortable to, to worship. Did you know that worship is not really a religious activity, but it's a human activity? And the question isn't whether or not you worship, but the question is, what or whom do you worship? Now, Paul Tripp has once said, worship is not primarily your activity. Worship is your first identity as a human being. Human beings were created by God to be worshipers. You can't divide people into two groups as if there are some who worship and others who don't. Every person, regardless of religious profession, has worshipped their way through every day of their existence. We're all created to worship. That's what it means to be human. And either you're worshipping your work, worshipping recreation, worship money, you worship power. But the question isn't whether or not you're worshiping, but it's really what reality and truth are you worshiping? Because as Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. He was spot on when he said this. And so a simple application for us, keep kingdom priorities. Doesn't mean everything else is unimportant. Everything's important, but not everything is equally important. Corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder that life, as hard as it is to take in, it's not about you. It's about a great king who we worship and celebrate with. Corporate worship is designed to remind you that in the center of all things that is glorious is a gracious and glorious king. And it's a gentle reminder here today that that king who rules over your life is not you. It's Jesus Christ. And worship reminds us of this, builds us up, sustains us, and guides us, and gives us life. So the first lesson of leadership, if not the first lesson of 
Christian life is to keep kingdom priorities in all that you do. But secondly, this is what he shows us. Pick godly partners. Pick godly people, both in friendship and strategic partnership. But look at the community that you surround yourselves with and pick godly partners. I gleaned this from verse 2. It's pretty simple there. Let's read that together. Verse 2 says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, so he was already a man in charge, charge over Jerusalem, for he was, what was he? Two things, faithful and God-fearing more than many men. He was more faithful and God-fearing more than many other men. So how do you pick good partners? Look for faithfulness and look for the fear of God. That's easier said than done because we're not like that ourselves. But if I say it this way, two qualities. Look for people who are reliable and look for people who have reverence in terms of the people that you pick as your godly partners. And it really could be applied to anything in friendships, in community, in marriage, in dating. Pick people who are faithful. Pick people who are God-fearing. Pick people who are reliable. Pick people who are reverent. Faithful and fearing. The reason I think he picks faithful people, according to verse 2, is that faithful people are dependable. They follow through. You can trust them. They're self-aware. They're aware of people, and they're honest with themselves. They don't put up a facade. They're not two-faced. They don't flake. They don't over-promise and under-deliver like many of us do, and we struggle with this, but they're faithful. They're consistent, just like Kim and Alice Song were in the many years that they served as church, not just to spotlight them, but just to show the gospel is true. You pick faithful and God-fearing people, reliable people, because they follow through. Now, you can imagine Nehemiah's context. He probably doesn't know who he can trust because it was a political mess, but especially in a time in which you need partners that can depend upon, you pick people and leaders who are faithful because a lot of their leaders, as we'll look later, were really corrupted by the manipulation of other leaders because of money and because of power, but faithful people. The second thing that he looks for in picking his partners is going to be reverence. This God-fearing nature and quality of people, of those people who love God and want to worship him and rely upon him, Reverence and God-fearing nature. Eugene Peterson has once said this about good leaders that I think he touches upon what does it mean to be a God-fearing person. I'm sort of just summarizing what he says. But he says, good leaders cultivate honest speech. They love advisors who tell them the truth. And the reason I quoted this, because you may be thinking that it's just about honesty, but really a God-fearing person, especially in partnership and leadership, as you learn and study about the fear of God in books like Proverbs, tells you that the first mark of a God-fearing character and leader is that they're honest, that they're dependable. You see, you could put it this way. Honesty can be classified as the foundation of leadership. Not only are good leaders honest, but they want honest people around them. And just about every book on leadership will list character as one of the top characteristics of effective leaders. And what is the one specific character list is going to be honesty. 
Now, one way you could think about it in this way, which I think God-fearing is in the book of Proverbs, and by the way, Proverbs always applies to Nehemiah because Nehemiah is an example of a walking wise man. That's why when you read the commentaries and you study Nehemiah, it always veers off and quotes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs because it shows the wisdom of navigating life with all its complexities. So if you're picking a God-fearing person, it's saying you got to pick someone with good God-fearing character, and the first characteristic, they say, is someone who has honest integrity. Integrity. Integrity is very simple, actually, when you look at the core essence of what it's trying to capture there. Integrity is not referring so much to things like stop stealing. It's referring to things that are a bit deeper. Hypocrisy. Because integrity involves practicing what you preach, being consistent and dependable and coherent with what you say and then how you live. And not living in such a way that you're essentially two-faced because the word hypocrisy in a book like Galatians basically means you put on a mask. And that means you put on one mask with this group of people, then you put on a second mask with this group, and you're basically in contemporary parlance referring to this as two-faced. And we're all guilty of this in some ways. And if you're two-faced, then you're hypocritical. And if you're hypocritical, you're the exact opposite of what Nehemiah is trying to talk about in the God-fearing nature of honest integrity. Integrity is someone who's consistent both inside and out. Integrity is someone who's the same with different people and different people groups. You're not politicking, you're not navigating, you're not manipulating. Integrity, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to understand integrity. Anyone who's not even a believer can understand what integrity is. It comes from the word integer. Integrity means a whole number, integer. Integrity implies you're a whole person. Wherever you go, you're the same. You're not erratic. You're not emotional. You're not duplicitous. You're not manipulative. You're not one way this way and one way this way. You don't twist people's words out of context. You don't take what people say and try to manipulate what they say so you could push your own agenda. But you're like an integer. Integrity, you're a whole person. You lead, in other words, friends, an orthodox life. An orthodox life, a... Orthodox, which means ortho-straight, doxa with your praise and your opinion. You have a straight opinion. That's where we get sort of the idea of orthodontist. You make your teeth straight through braces. We are to be straight in our worship, straight in our opinion. We'll be a whole person. We'll be an integer of a person. And that captures the essence of what Nehemiah, I believe, is talking about. He's saying, pick godly partners who are God-fearing, who have the character to be consistent to be an integer of their personality because that's what makes a wise person. You see, friends, to fear God is to nurture an attitude of awe and humility and walk in radical dependence upon him in each area of your life. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie in the book An Old Testament Theology summarizes and says wisdom is inseparable from knowledge. In Proverbs, wisdom mostly cares about the mastery over experience through intellectual, emotional, and spiritual states of knowing. To become wise, we must first develop a thirst for knowledge. That's why you have the Levites. You have to have a thirst for understanding so you can develop an idea of wisdom. But he doesn't go there. He says wisdom just isn't the accumulation of knowledge. And he says you could memorize the entire book of Proverbs and be the biggest fool in the room. Do you know why? Because you need not just knowledge, but the knowledge 
to be arranged in a wise way so that the Spirit takes that knowledge and touches your heart and makes you more affectionate, more loving, more patient, more faithful, more God-fearing, and you worship God. The truths that are contained in the Bible need to be able to saturate and penetrate your heart. He says, if it had not affected his or her heart, it never informs the behavior of a person. The book of Proverbs remains completely useless, and the person reading Proverbs remains a fool. Nehemiah shows that he had this heart, at least as an example of a broken person. And the way that you know Nehemiah had this heart is because everything that he writes in the memoirs of the book of Nehemiah always gives credit to God. He's always deferring to God. He's always affectionate to God. Here's just a quick sampling. In chapter 1, verse 4 to 11, he prayed to God whether or not he should take this project. In chapter 2, verse 8, he gives credit to God and says, this is God's gracious hand. In chapter 2, 19 to 20, God will give me success. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, don't be afraid. Remember that the Lord is near. In chapter 4, verse 20, God will fight for us when you're fearful and you're anxious. In chapter 5, verse 9, shouldn't we walk in the fear of God so we can love our people? He's a man that has walked closely with the Lord. He has an awe and reverence. He has Proverbs built into his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. He models and he also picks godly people who are faithful and reliable, but also God-fearing. They were integers of people. Friends, far too many of us, myself included, live too much like a fraction. That may be good to pass the SATs. Well, I guess SATs are done with in California. They may be good to pass the test. But the mathematical lesson that Nehemiah is trying to show us is that integers are the name of the game. To be integrity, have integrity and to live in a way that you're consistent, both inside and out, in various people that you talk with. See, it's a hard-pressing passage, isn't it, friends? Not only to pick friends that may be easier to pick out, one faithful and integer-type-like people, but really, really presses us is if the Spirit causes you to look in the mirror and ask yourself, are you a faithful person? Are you a God-fearing person? Are you a wise person? See, that's just a gentle encouragement. The lesson in leadership is pick godly partners. The pastoral lesson is to look in the mirror. Wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror and say, I want reliable, faithful, God-fearing people and partners. Who wouldn't? But then direct that scrutiny into the mirror and look yourself straight in the eyes and be honest with yourselves before God. Am I faithful? Am I God-fearing? Do I live as an integer? Or do I look honestly in the past week in my life and it's all fractured and the reason your life is all fractured is because you live as a fraction and not as an integer? That's the challenge for us to consider. And that leads us to Nehemiah's third lesson in leadership. Recognize dangers and threats. Recognize dangers and threats. This is, this is a tough one. It actually explains why he says pick godly leaders who are God-fearing and who are consistent and honest about themselves because what he's dealing with in recognizing threats are people who are not actually like integers and God-fearing. They're very hypocritical and two-faced. His name is Tobiah. He recognizes this threat. It even says in the passage, he sent these letters to make me afraid. 
So he recognizes the threat. That already shows he has a real keen sense of leadership here. This threat, in light of everything that Nehemiah has faced, is probably the hardest one so far. Tobiah is his name. And the reason it's so hard is this. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's manipulative, and it involves leadership on both sides. In other words, Tobiah penetrated the leaders of Judah through two ways, money and marriage. And isn't it funny how that oftentimes is what makes a context of an organization really tough and complicated? Money and family. That makes it really difficult. Tobiah gained a level of influence. He has a level of leadership because he was in business partnership with some of the leaders of Judah, but also because he married into, quote-unquote, royalty. Read with me verse 18. It says it very plainly there. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. That's a financial contract because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah as his wife. In other words, his daughters, they all married into royalty. They all married into leadership of Judah. Not only was that the case, he was probably savvy enough to know, if I want to have some sort of influence, I'm going to penetrate leadership by having business transactions with those who are in leadership. It's a difficult circumstance. I'm not sure if there's a way for me to explain this that people who may not have been exposed to this sort of dynamic can understand the complexities and the difficulty. But maybe just by way of personal testimony, I recognize first that the biggest tyrant of many churches could be the pastor. We already know that and we can recognize that. But putting that aside, I also could say because the Word of God is telling us that also it could be just as tyrannical are going to be difficult leaders in the church. I'm thankful for the leaders at New Life Press, but I could resonate with what Nehemiah is going through. It's funny when I go and teach and, and preach and I get to meet the leadership of various churches, especially during a sabbatical, and you realize that in some ways, without saying it so definitively, you can have lunch with some of the leaders. You can hang out, you can play basketball, go get a cup of coffee. And it's always interesting where for some reason, some reason or not, I could talk to these leaders and I could walk away and say, that person or that group, two or three people, they have the church in their pockets. And that may not be a bad thing, but it probably is. And that's what's hard and difficult because the reason they have the church in the pockets is because they did sacrifice a lot and they are very gifted, but it's so nuanced because there's an aspect of their character that also is very dangerous for the church. And it complicates the dynamics of the church because you have good qualities mixed with bad qualities and you have relationships that are good mixed with relationships that are bad. And now you have two or three people who seem to be not necessarily like an integer, but they're more divisive and like fractions, but they got the church in their pocket, like Tobiah is trying to do here. Now, last week I had a, a lunch meeting with a bunch of pastors in North Orange County. They weren't, re weren't reformed. They weren't in the PCA. Um, godly brothers leading wonderful churches, and I learned from them and pray that in some ways they could be blessed by what little I have to offer. And the pastor that was leading this meeting went around and said, maybe it will be helpful if all of us could go around and let's share about a difficult time that you're having at church right now. A difficult time. And I kid you not, every one of them, as they went around to share, shared something about their family 
but in a good way. You know, some of them are just starting having kids. But all of them shared in some form of flavor the difficulty that they're currently going through with a group in the church that is difficult to deal with. And they want things, and they lobby for things, and they strive for things. And some reason, that's what came out with everyone. Now, I say this, friends, just to make the market clear. I'm not trying to imply anything at New Life Press. I think the leadership in the church is great. There's always a danger of the pastor and leaders doing this. It's not a comfortable point to make, but it's in the passage. It's in the latter half of chapter 6. But at the same time, if it's in there, and I believe that's what Nehemiah is struggling through, then it's something that I think is real out there in different churches and something that we could pray for and something that our church at New Life Press, both for myself and any sort of leader, is not immune to. So at least by way of application, you could pray for us and the leadership to be united and to be like-minded and to pursue the same vision by the heart that God has given us. Did you know, friends, sort of switching gears on this last point, what the world's fastest-growing religion is? The world's fastest-growing religion. According to an article written by Thaddeus Williams in the Gospel Coalition, he says it's self-worship. Self-worship, which is really at the heart of Tobiah and the heart of sin because it was in the heart of Adam. Self-worship. In a survey that was put together by Dave Kinneman, it says 86% of believers believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue things that you desire the most. And 91% of the people affirm this statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. Now, we don't have time to go in this, but that's very postmodern. That's really expressive individualism. That's Charles Taylor. This is all kinds of smart people that say this is our culture today. But I think if we're honest, all of us are like that if you're honest with yourself. What makes, a, what makes you enjoy yourself the most? To pursue what you want to do the most. Just like Tobiah, I want power. I want money. I want influence. I want relationships. I want to be in love, and I want somebody to love me. All really good things, but if you pursue that as your ultimate goal more than Jesus, the Bible is calling that an idol. In our day, according to Thaddeus Williams, the Westminster Catechism that we believe here at this church has been inverted. And we often live like this. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself forever and not God. And here's the problem with that sort of mentality, which is basically sin. The problem of the cult of self-worship. Well, the first problem is that it's obvious rebellion against God. When we try to be our own sources of truth, we slowly drive ourselves crazy. When we try to be our own sources of comfort and satisfaction, we become miserable wrecks. We become, when we become our own standard of goodness and truth and justice, we become obnoxious and self-righteous. When we seek self-glorification by seeking the spotlight and platforming ourselves more than Jesus, we become inglorious. And why does this all happen? The nature of sin, it's simple. It's because we're not God. We're never meant to trust in ourselves ultimately or to be defined or satisfied in ourselves or captivated by ourselves. We were made to revere and to worship and be satisfied in someone greater than ourselves, namely Jesus Christ and God. As Albert Einstein once put it, a person first starts to live when he can live outside of himself. When you live for yourself, you're on the road to foolishness, and brokenness. Our greatest joy and satisfaction comes in worship when we admire someone greater. It's just part of life, isn't it, if you're honest with yourselves? Why is it the fact that when we watch the Lakers win a championship or the Dodgers win the World Series, man, we're probably the happiest we've ever been. 
We're much happier than if we play a pickup game down at the park and we win a game where that's okay, but doesn't even compare. You may really enjoy the artwork at your kid's elementary school, say, oh, that's really cute, but you'll go to great lengths and pay more money in order to see Van Gogh in the immersive work. You may actually, like the Christmas talent show that we had last year with all of us showing off our talents, but I don't think any of you would necessarily pay $100 just to get a ticket so that we could profit for this to see each other put on a talent show, but you'll pay hundreds of dollars to see your favorite singer, your favorite artist, your favorite orchestra. And the reason is this, is because we were naturally created for transcendence. We were created for something bigger than ourselves. Our greatest joy and satisfaction doesn't come when we try to display our glory over another, but our greatest satisfaction comes when we admire the glory of another, someone transcendent and bigger than ourselves. Then life will be able to cohere. And the reason I bring this up is because worship is the antidote to people like Tobiah who are part of the fastest, and if not the fastest, at least the longest religion of self-worship, of seeking your idols and satisfaction in the things that you want. Did you know that all the temptations that Nehemiah and the Israelites were facing of rebuilding the wall, all the temptations in some form are the same temptations that Jesus Christ also experienced in the beginning of his ministry when he was tested by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness. Well, for example, Satan said, I'll turn these bread into stones. That's the temptation of satisfaction and hedonism. Then he says, actually, if you bow down to me, I'll let you rule over all these nations. And Jesus said, no, and he quotes the word of God. That's the temptation of glory and spotlight and power. And then he says, why don't you leap from this temple and prove to me that you're actually Jesus? And he didn't do this because he trusted in God. So really, it's a trusting in himself and a temptation to trust in yourself for everything in life and not in God. It's the same, tempta same temptations that the Israelites and you and I struggle with today. There could be materialism, such as bread, or in our case, money and nicer houses. It could be hedonism, that we just want to satisfy our own desires, whether physically or spiritually. It could be about power, that we don't trust in God, but we want to trust in ourselves for a political reign. But every time that we fail, every time the Israelites fail in these temptations, we can be reassured that the true Israelite in Jesus Christ succeeded, and he overcame, and he pleased God the Father, and he glorified God the name, and he trusted in the promises and plan of the Father for redemptive history, and not in himself, so that where we failed, we find forgiveness and reassurance in the success, in the, the success of Jesus Christ for us. Jesus Christ, who's the true and better Nehemiah, Nehemiah also didn't fall victim to the manipulation of the Trinity who wanted to take him down, but he succeeded. Nehemiah didn't want a name for himself. Nehemiah didn't want power. Nehemiah cared for the people and wanted to build a city so that we could get God's presence into the people. He was still broken and sinful, so he's not perfect. And he just gives us a picture of the true and perfect Nehemiah, the true and perfect Israel in Jesus Christ, who went through every temptation that you and I go through, and every temptation that Nehemiah went through, and every temptation that the Israelites went through. And whereas all of us failed in heart or deed, Jesus Christ succeeded as our once crucified Savior, so that we can now live for him in glory and honor. And that keep kingdom priorities pick godly partners, 
and be aware of the dangers and threats that are around us everywhere. Friends, let's bow together. Please pray with me.